Hi, I'm Matt Williams. Welcome to Glimpses, the podcast where we talk about life, love, creativity, and all that spiritual stuff. My guest today is a remarkable human being, the beautiful and talented Angelina Fiordalisi. She has performed on Broadway and off-Broadway in numerous regional theaters, television programs, and feature films, and she is a producer. She has produced plays on and off-Broadway, winning a Tony Award for Best Revival of a Play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And for the past 26 years, Angelina has been the executive director and founding artistic director of the Cherry Lane Theater, the longest-running off-Broadway theater in New York City. And while running the Cherry Lane Theater, Angelina created the Obie Award-winning Mentor Series, a program dedicated to nurturing new playwrights and launching the next generation of American dramatists. This program was so successful. The Mentor Series launched new works by more than 70 emerging playwrights from Anne Washburn, Katori Hall, Rajiv Joseph, and Sheila Callahan, all of whom have since returned to the program to serve as mentors. And... Angelina Fiordalisi happens to be my girlfriend, the mother of our two children, and my wife of almost 36 years. I am thrilled to have her on my podcast. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's gl- I'm glad you're here. <laughs> uh, so the first thing I want to talk about before anything else, the Goldfinger Review. <laughs> <laughs> So I think you need to explain the Goldfinger Review to the listeners. Well, <laughs> uh, no one's ever asked me that question. Um, when I was mm, probably 11 or 12 years old, I would have uh, shows in my garage. And, and this would, is in Detroit, in your parents' garage, right? Yes, Um in actually Warren, Michigan, on Otis Street, 3822 Otis. (laughs) And I would invite the neighborhood kids for a nickel, sometimes a dime. And by the end of my tenure there running the garage, it was probably a quarter. Um, But Goldfinger, I talked my girlfriend into wearing a long white men's shirt, and we had uh, black leotards on. And I choreographed to Goldfinger. The Shirley Bassey song. Goldfinger. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You can edit that out. No. (laughs) And you were 11 or 12 years old. You were, so you were conceiving, writing, performing, and producing a play in your parents' garage. Yes. Okay. And also in grade school, from what I understand, you had a cardboard box that you cut out and kind of made into a television set, and you would do the weather report for all the nuns in your school. And the nun was so impressed, she took you from classroom to classroom so you could do your weather report. Is that true? Yes, (laughs) that is true. Okay. (laughs) Oh, my God. And uh, you want a television set. Yes. At An 12. actual television set, not a cardboard television set. No, a real TV set uh, uh-huh. on uh, Rita Bell's Stairway to the Stars. 
And it was a talent contest. Which was a local talent contest. And uh, I entered, and my father would take three-by-five postcards and write the address of the studio and, uh, and put a stamp on each one and handed them out, thousands of them, out to all the relatives, all the neighbors. And, of course, I won the first round. But and what did you do as your talent? I it was did, a talent show. Yes, I, mean, uh, I, I did a tap dance. Two? Um, oh, my goodness. Wasn't it the Hawaiian? Oh, yes, Hawaiian war chant. There you go. Yes. All right. I and can't did, believe you know these details. And, <laughs> and, did, and didn't you tell your father, you were sitting at home, you said, I'm going to win that television. Yes, and you knew you were going to. Yes. And you did. And if I remember the story correctly, it, the TV was sitting on your lap in the backseat of the car, and your dad took you to a burger joint, White Castle or someplace, and you fell asleep holding your television on the way home. Yes. Okay. See, as a storyteller, I'm not making that up. That is no, all the truth. No, you're not. That, that's true. Okay. Okay. Yes. So all that tap dancing wore you out, and you just passed out. Well, I was so excited, yeah, and uh, I won the finals, and I got my TV. All right, good. <laughs> so the notion of performing and producing just seemed to have been in your DNA since birth, because no one in your family on either side was in show business. No actors, designers, directors, nothing. Yet, you were always singing, dancing, and performing. Why, why do you think that is? Um, I don't know. I think it was my spirit, uh, loved life, and, uh, and I loved dancing. I loved music. My father was a dancer, and my father taught me every one of the dances when I was very little. He like would, Foxtrot? Samba, those kind of things? Yes, cha-cha. Okay. Cha-cha-cha. The waltz. <laughs> okay. He put my feet on his feet, and he taught me all the patterns. But somewhere inside you, you had this spiritual nudge, this impulse to conceive, write, perform, and produce plays in your garage. In my garage, in my relative's basement with all my cousins. Okay. They laugh about it now. They, they tell me how I tortured them and made them do plays in the basement. I did it on the playground at school. Um, I would always cast myself in the leading role. Hmm. That's unusual. <laughs> <laughs> Until people started arguing with me about that. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, for, for years I did it. All right, now let's flash forward about 30 or so years. And you're doing the exact same thing at the Cherry Lane Theater. You're producing, performing, charging people more than a quarter to come and see the shows that you either act in or produce or direct occasionally. So did you ever make that connection that you're doing the same thing you did in your parents' garage when you were 12? No. I've never thought of it that way. Think about that. Because when I was thinking about this podcast, I went back and I looked at where you started, and I went, everything you did at 11 and 12 years old in your parents' garage in Detroit, you're now doing as 
a grown woman in New York City at the Cherry Lane Theater. Yes, I guess that, that. that is a connection I hadn't even thought of. All right. Well, yeah. let's talk about the Mentor Series. You won an Obie Award for the Mentor Series. Do you want to explain a little bit about that and how it worked? Yes. Um, I created a program with uh, one of my oldest, dearest friends, Suzanne Brinkley, uh, who had an outline for a program. But I had had some experience at the New Harmony Project mm -hmm. and then at the Carnegie Mellon Showcase of New Plays. And I loved what they did, how they put artists in um, a rehearsal situation and simulated uh, a preview. Uh, I thought that that was really clever to be there with the playwright, with a dramaturg and a director and actors and everyone um, trying to realize the vision of the playwright and ask questions and, uh, and ultimately, of course, the playwright responsible for how they want to tell the story. And uh, when I thought of the Cherry Lane Theater, when I had the vision walking in and thinking about that, it became so clear to me that this is what I'm meant to be doing, is to support playwrights by creating a situation. At the time, in the 90s, a number of award-winning playwrights that we engaged as mentors did not want to use dramaturgs because it was a new uh, addition to the art form of playmaking that they weren't secure in yet and they didn't trust everyone yet. So we thought, well, Pulitzer Prize winning playwrights might know something about writing a play and that they would then act as a dramaturg, uh, if you will. These Pulitzer Prize winning playwrights would mentor a young playwright or a burgeoning playwright. Yes, emerging playwrights. Emerging yeah. playwright for an entire year or a season, right? Yes. And then explain that process because this isn't a one-time mentorship where they go in the room for a couple hours and walk away. I explain that process. Well, um, I enlisted uh, a number of drama... Um, oh, what do you call them? Literary managers. Literary managers and artistic directors in regional theaters across the country and asked them if they would um, nominate plays, you know, uh, between two and three, two to five plays, let's say. And, of course, a number of the New York institutions as well, NYU, Lincoln Center, and Catania from Lincoln Center, a number of these people who would nominate three to five plays, let's say, and um, I and two or three of my colleagues would read through all the plays, and then um, we would select the top ten and start sending them to... Uh, in the beginning, there were five plays, five playwrights, and five mentors, but I found that that was really hard to bring that many artists in. We just didn't have the staff. We didn't have the uh, secured funding to be able to afford that. And it was simpler and better, and we could serve the playwrights better with just three plays. So um, we would send our top picks, you know, three each to the three playwrights, and then we would do a dance because sometimes 
the mentor, uh, for example, A.R. Gurney said, oh, I can't write, I can't uh, accept that play because I'm writing a play that takes place in a college campus in a theater program. Oh, interesting. You know, and that was... I, I didn't know that. Yeah. They, uh, they, they didn't feel they would be the right influence. Uh, so it was never about... Uh, it was what resonated for the mentor where they felt they could really do something to help the playwright, where they felt moved to... You know, so and, and what we did, it was a blind submission. So uh, the, the first page was a number... They didn't know if it was a male, female, um, an artist of color, or anything. You know, they uh, they would um, read the play and just based on the play's merit, choose a play, and then that's how the selection would happen. And then we would have a private reading, uh, which I found and learned about at the um, New Harmony Project. How wonderful it was when the playwright read their own play, and then we created an announcement night from that where the playwright would read his own play, the emerging playwright that was selected, and the mentor would read from a new play that they were working on. And it was a very exciting, welcoming launching of the program. That would happen in the fall. And then we would host a private, uh, public reading where um, the community would come in and we would get responses from the community. We would the community would ask questions. Did you understand this? You know, was this? You know, and um, the playwrights were very gracious and would accept. And of course, with the mentor there, would help them siphon through them all to see what was really helpful and what wasn't. And then the playwright would go back and do a rewrite with the guidance of the mentor. And then we would have, uh, which was unheard of at the time, we. Um, committed to producing the play for two weeks and uh, bringing it up in front of an audience because we believed that a playwright learns the most about their play when it's up on its feet before an audience. So we simulated a preview period and we allowed the playwright to continue rewriting the play and sometimes the actors would come on stage with fresh pages that was accepted and over the years, we developed an audience who accepted that. Um, sometimes the directors were not happy with that because they'd have to come back in and rehearse. Or some directors liked things to be set before inviting an audience because it is, of course, New York City, and people are very... Uh, critical. Critical. They see a lot of theater. And yeah. scrutinizing mm -hmm. and... As the years developed, we had a lot of theater people coming. Regional theaters would come and see the work. Agents would come in and see the work so that the playwrights got the best uh, platform uh, to launch them and get a, uh, an agent, uh, get productions at regional theaters. It was very exciting. And who are, the, who are some of these playwrights that were mentored that re went through this program that went on to have amazing careers. It's a, it's a long list, but can you just name a few off the top of your head? Uh, yes, um, Rajiv Joseph. You produced his this his first play went through the mentor yes, series. Yes, he didn't know he was a playwright. Okay, he he took a playwriting class on a whim, 
And uh, at NYU, right? Yes. Okay. And this was his first play, uh, uh, Huck and Holden. Huck and Holden, I remember it well. Yes. Yeah. And we took it from the Mentor Project series to um, uh, uh, off-Broadway production. We also had an off-Broadway production of his work. And Katori Hall, mm-hmm. um, her first play was Who Do Love mm-hmm. that we did in Mentor Project. And we also moved it to the main stage and she gave her her first off-Broadway production. Um, a number of these people, uh, Molly Smith Metzler, who just won um, a number of awards for her series, Made, um, uh Everywhere I look in television and film, I see uh, their names. A lot of shows in New York as well. Anton Dudley uh, has had his plays done everywhere. Now he's writing operas. Bridget Wimberly wrote an opera about uh, Charlie Parker that's being done all over the world. And she went through the Mentor series. Yeah, she was in the first year of Mentor The very Project. first year. Yes. So it's a success. And I know your philosophy has always been, let's not sit around and discuss theory and criticism. Let's roll up our sleeves and put the show up and actually see what we've got. And I think that's what made it so successful because a playwright can be in a room watching actors bang around on the set, stumble over lines, you know, figuring out intentions. And they'd learn more from the actual process than all the discussions. Obviously there's discussions, but I always thought what you came up with was so brilliant because you're doing it you're not talking about it. You're doing it, and you're learning by the doing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they, they also learned sitting behind and feeling the audience. Oh, of course, with it too. sitting in the audience, As, especially if it's a comedy. You know instantly, <laughs> <laughs> Yes. if it's working or not. Um, all right, so you had all of these brilliant playwrights that you worked with. I, I started to make a list of some of the mentors. Edward Albee, Lynn Nottage, Amiri Baraka, Sam Shepard, Pete Gurney, Wendy Wasserstein, Alfred Urey, Tony Kushner, Charles Fuller, David Henry Wong, and the list goes on and on and on, right? And you had master classes with a lot of these playwrights, where mm-hmm. they had a private master class with the playwright and a handful of people, in the, and they got to ask these amazing playwrights questions. What did you learn from being in a room with all these brilliant playwrights? Was there a one thing that you took away, a common denominator? I think it's just how important their storytelling is and how they can move people uh, and open our eyes to things and see things in a new light that we never even considered. I, I became awestruck, I have to say. Uh, with well, is it the, the voice process. of the play? Is it the character? Is it the theme? Is it uh, reinventing a style? Well, for me, it, it was always the spirit of a play and how it moved me spiritually. Mm-hmm. That, uh, to me, is most important. And then viscerally, emotionally, uh, uh, if I could feel something and care about these people... Uh, that was secondary. That was the second most important thing. And the rest uh, was just gloss mm-hmm. to me. Well, I think it was Arthur Hopkins, who was an old, old school theater critic, said, I want the thought that arises from the emotion, not the emotion that rises from the thought. 
And the idea, and that's what you're describing, you have this spiritual, emotional response to something, and you may not even understand it. But then afterwards, you go out for a coffee or a drink with your friends, and then you move into the thought process. Why was I so moved? Why did that touch my soul? But there are so many audience members who are not necessarily in their heads and understanding of the process or or only intellectual. There are, I mean, I think it's important to open the heart chakra. Uh, to me, that was the most important part of storytelling, is to open people's hearts. Uh, Do you think that's the either the obligation or the joyful privilege of all artists to open the heart? Do you think, whether you're a painter, dancer, sculptor, composer? Well, I don't know if it's conscious or not, or if it needs to be conscious. Some people just do it naturally. Um, And it's not that important to all people. But I think that at the core of the best art is the ability to make us feel. Okay. Eva Legallian or Sarah Bernhardt, one of those greats, right? And I'm paraphrasing here. Had a quote said, when she walked into a theater, it always felt like she was walking into church, into a sacred place. Is the Cherry Lane a sacred place for you? Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes, definitely. It has replaced the notion of church to me. Uh, because I feel it is sacred what goes on there, people making art and exposing themselves. Uh, well, know. it is a gathering, and there is a shared experience. Yes. And there is a shared emotional response, and there is a spiritual connection amongst everyone in the room and on the stage. And for that hour and a half, two hours, however long you're there, you are in this a uh, sacred space, experiencing life in a different way. So, yeah, maybe it is. Like Having church. a moment together. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and ultimately, it, at its best, the theater will do that. Will send people away thinking, feeling, It's discussing. transformative. Yes. Uh, there, that, one, that I always say that when you sit down in the chair and the play begins, and when the lights come up at the end and you walk out of the theater, you are a slightly different person. Because something, there, it was a transformative experience. You learned something about the human condition. You learned something about yourself or what it means to, to, you know, to be a, 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 a parent, a politician, or whatever it is. Just go down the list of things, right? Or to look at something a little differently. Yeah, perspective. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, working with all of these fantastic playwrights, did that impact you as uh, an actor? Did that change how you approach your work as an actor? Oh, absolutely. Uh, It just informed me um, to go deeper in the process and of the questions. What do you mean, deeper in the process? What is that? To ask questions when you're confused about something instead of doing all the work by yourself um, in in your imagination and in your uh, emotional makeup that applies to the character to speak up and ask more questions so that um, you have a leveled understanding, multi-level understanding 
of the character and the story being told and how you fit into the story. Well, it's always, and what, the, the operative word there is you're asking why. You said the word why. And I always say, you know, a, a, a bad actor always worries about how they're going to do something. A good actor always asks why. Why am I doing this? Why am I drinking water at this moment? Why am I choosing to get into an argument? Or why am I kissing her at this moment? You know, and that why, that digging down is, and obviously these were living playwrights, so you had them in the room and you could ask them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. when it's Shakespeare or Moliere or whomever, you can't corner them with a cup of coffee and ask them why. But that digging down to the why, why, why does this play even exist is the first question. Why mm -hmm. are you telling this story, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it goes from there. Well, uh, I want to talk about a few of the actors you've worked with. Uh, Anthony Quinn, mm -hmm. Diana Ross. And as I was thinking about this podcast, it struck me, you on an episode of Roseanne were George Clooney's girlfriend. Yes. That's right. <laughs> I think I think that's something. That was before George Clooney became George Clooney. Yes. But you were George Clooney's girlfriend on a Roseanne yes. episode. Janine. Janine. That so, was my character's right. name. Yeah. yeah. And I got to throw a drink in his face. Was it a drink or a, a thing Was of it popcorn? popcorn? I think oh, it was, was a bowl of popcorn. Yeah, I threw popcorn So my in his wife face. threw a bowl of popcorn in George Clooney's face. Mm-hmm. All right. So when I talk to my students, I use a phrase, tenacity trumps talent. That if you're going to be in show business, whether singer, dancer, producer, director, whatever, you must be tenacious and resilient. Do you agree with that? Yes. Because I, I look at your career, and we're, I know we're talking about the past, but shortly we're going to talk about what's coming up, the future. And I, I look at your career, and I went, you kept the Cherry Lane Theater, a non-profit theater, running after 9-11, after the 2008 Great Recession, after hirings and firings and board members abandoning you with a huge deficit, and you didn't lie down and die, you rolled up your sleeves, you survived, and you thrived. Well, it wasn't without the community supporting. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, because I thought I had failed. This was 2010, which was the roughest year probably of my life, both personally and That's interesting you say that because my next question was, what was the lowest point in your life? So yeah. that was 2010. Yes. Uh, because on my birthday, we got a call from Matisse. Mm-hmm that uh, she was in a hospital in Hawaii. <laughs> yes, had an accident. She had an accident, and so I got on the next plane, went to Hawaii. She had cracked her, the, above her good eye, She she's blind in her left eye, and above her good eye, she had hit the corner. She slipped and fell and hit the corner of a piece of furniture and gouged uh, just under her eyebrow. And so uh, that was one thing that happened in 2010. And then um, I brought her to Los Angeles. She went to a, a plastic surgeon, got it taken care of. And then I came home. And a few days later, I got a phone call from a nurse in a hospital in Boston 
saying that she had our son there and would I like to talk to him? And uh, to make a long story short, uh, Fred had had a manic episode and he ended up in the hospital and he said, Mom, get the fuck up here and get me out of here. And I said, I'll be right there. I didn't think. I got on a train, got up to Boston, went to the hospital and had to admit him. And uh, I washed out my underwear every night and just went back to the hospital. Same clothes, same shoes. Same everything. No toothbrush. (laughs) (laughs) And then you came and relieved me so that I could uh, go home and pick up some clothes. Uh, And in the meantime, I did a reading for Labyrinth Theater Company because they were doing Tennessee Williams. Williams. I remember you left and came back down to do the Tennessee Williams reading for the Labyrinth. (laughs) It timed out. (laughs) Yeah. And then... um, I went back, and uh, while I was dealing with that, there was some issues in the mentor project. Um, I had uh, an executive director at the time that I loved, who was like a brother, who was having a hard time making ends meet, and it was the the Great Recession had hit us finally in 2010, and we were in a $250,000 deficit, and... um, my board of directors uh, didn't want to face it, a number of them, and they they left. And so I took a look at this and I thought, well, I'm just a failure and I can't make this work anymore. I need to sell my business. I need to sell the theater. And so uh, I made that announcement in the New York Times and I quickly got Emails, phone calls, people showing up at the theater, letters saying, we can't let this happen. What do you need? What's going on? You can't leave the theater. You're too much. You're important to our community. And I said, send me your rentals. And so people started sending me rentals and uh, I had to lay off my staff. I had to lay off to quit programming uh, for a couple of years. And in two years, I paid off the $250,000 deficit. And then I could start up my programs again. I could hire a development director and get back to um, getting funding in for the programs, et cetera, and letting the rentals pay for the programs, et cetera. So, yeah, I, I feel very good about turning that around, but it was with the help of the community. Well, <laughs> uh, lyrics from a song are bouncing through my head. I get knocked down, but I get up again. And that, and that was you. You got back up. And I, I, I've seen how tenacious you are. And I go, where does that grit come from, that just dogged determination? And is it because you're a street dog from Detroit? Is it because you come from immigrant parents? Mm-hmm. Is it just, just uh, being the oldest child and proving to the world and yourself you can do it? I mean, that... That took real determination. And yes, the community rallied around you, but you did it. You did it. Well, it's all those things, and it's also in my DNA. Because both of my great-grandmothers, my maternal great-grandmother was a landowner and a forewoman. This is in Italy, in southern Italy? Yes. Baiano? Yes. Okay. And she she ran the farm, and their um, crops were... Um, figs, 
and chestnuts. And my great-grandmother, my bisnonna, on my father's side, she was Angelina. She's I'm named after her. Okay. And uh, she owned a grocery store. She owned and ran. A so these store. women were landowners, had their own business. They mm-hmm. were tough, independent women, mm-hmm. and that's your ancestry. That yes. kind of the, the lineage. Yes. Yeah. Do you believe? I think it's. Uh, I think I'm quoting this correctly. Carl Jung said that creativity comes from the realm of the mothers, mm-hmm. and I believe that to be true. Well, the ultimate creation is, is life, right? Go. So, yes. We're born to create. Yes. Whether it's a skyscraper, a chocolate cake, or a play, we are born to create. Yes. And I've watched you not only create plays, I've watched you create homes through our marriage. You've created environments for our kids. You, you're constantly creating. A lot of people don't know that, but you walk into a space and you go, hmm, Feng Shui, and I used to think Feng Shui was the Japanese word for total chaos. But instead, you go, oh, no, if we move this here and put the vase there, and what about that? Now, sometimes it drives me crazy. Before I've had my first cup of coffee, you're going, what if we move the couch there? And, we d-? and I go, shut up, let me drink my coffee. I know, I know. <laughs> but you create these incredible <laughs> environments, and I think a testament is the Cherry Lane Theater. When people walk into that theater, you talked about spirit, you talked about it being a sacred space. Whether people have any religious background or spiritual background, it doesn't matter. They walk in and they go, wow, this feels different. This feels like a living space. And I believe that's because you have pumped your spirit, the spirit, into that space. It is tangible. And uh, I'm cognizant of the magnificent spirits who graced the space. Oh, there you the go. The theater ma- makers throughout its history. You know, the, all it was a place, a launching pad for so many artists. So many. Uh, Estelle Parsons, Tyne Daly, uh, Kim Stanley. Um, didn't, uh, didn't Cary Grant even do a play as a baby actor on the stage there? <laughs> he was involved too, yeah. yes. And uh, Earl... Uh, James Earl Jones. Jones. And uh, didn't Picasso have a one act that was there? Yes. And, and yes. F. Scott Fitzgerald. F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote the a vegetable play. The Vegetable. The Vegetable. Was yeah. his play. Yes. So it's really about recognizing and uh, respecting uh, the spirit of the place. Okay, too. now that's the perfect transition because this year the Cherry Lane Theater turns 100 years old. Yes. And it's got a hundred years of spirit and performances and energy and thought, and that space is alive. And you're preparing yourself for a huge transition. And I think we can talk about it because you're five days away from this event. Yes. You want to tell me and the listeners what's happening? After 26 and a half years, I am uh, selling my business, selling the theaters. Uh, which have eight apartments above them, uh, to a thrilling, exciting, new, young uh, production company, A24, who happen to be my favorite filmmakers, uh, Academy Award-winning filmmakers. And aren't they nominated for something like 11 Academy Awards right now? Yes, right now. So the A24 
is purchasing the Cherry Lane Theater from yes. you, and they're going to move into... They want to expand uh, into live entertainment. Okay. Um, and they want to create a destination point for people to come. And uh, they're very young and very respectful of the 100th anniversary, and, uh, and they say they want me involved as a thought partner, very millennial. Well, I want you involved as a thought partner. <laughs> Come on, why wouldn't they? Now, but we say, but what's really important, I think it can't be underestimated, this sacred space that you've loved on for over 26 years, it was very important to you that it remain a theater. Yes, it that's was, in it the wasn't, contract. It wasn't going to be turned into a restaurant or no. condos or whatever. No. It, it will remain, and lo and behold, A24, this vibrant, young film television company, is moving in, and they're going to continue and nurture live theater as well as their film projects. Well, we share a mission, uh, uh, strangely enough, of launching emerging talent. Ah, there you that, go. That's, that's what they do in their work, and a lot of their writers are playwrights. And they want to do their plays and use the pool of talent that they've accumulated over the years. Well, I, every theater I know, every successful company I know has a mission statement. And the Cherry Lane has had a mission statement for years. Do you personally have a mission statement for yourself? Yes. Do I you have. want to share it or do you want to keep it private? It's up to you. Um, <clears throat> I don't mind sharing it. Um, it's uh, to heal, illuminate, inspire the conscious spiritual evolution of humanity in my work and in my relationships. That's, that's my basic Who can argue with that? Mission statement. I live with it. It's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good stuff. <laughs> you illuminate me all the time. <laughs> Chastise me occasionally, but you illuminate me a lot. You always inspire me. Uh, that's a perfect segue because I want to talk a little bit about m managing a marriage and two careers. We've been married for a lot of years, and it hasn't always been easy. We've had some rough years. Mm -hmm. We're still together. Mm -hmm. We still love each other. But when you talk to people or uh, young people ask you about how did you manage a marriage, raising kids, I buried myself in television. I was working seven days a week oftentimes and 12, 14, 15 hours a day. And you gave up your career for eight years to stay home with the kids so they would have mom at home. And then after that, you transitioned back into theater, Cherry Lane, running a theater, producing plays, the mentor series while raising kids, while building our home and me flying back and forth to LA. I mean, it, I look back now, and I have to separate Matt Williams from the woman he's married to and just kind of stand back and look at Angelina Fiordalisi, and I go, I marvel at you. How did you do that? You're an amazing human being. You really are. Well, How did you do that? I, me and millions of other women who decide that raising the child, well, we were able to afford it, Yes. number one. That is a gift, a blessing, the economic a privilege. Factor, yes, yes. We could afford it right. for me to stay home, and you know, deep in my DNA and and, and ancient 
going back, you know, Dolls. thousands and thousands of years. Grandmothers of, and great, 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 great grandmothers. Yes, of all my people, the yep. Lani people, who who were uh, who first settled uh, Naples, um, being at home with the kids, mothering the children was the most important job that you could have, and I believe that today too. Being a mother who's present for your children, a hands-on mother as much as possible, even those who can't afford to be there all the time. But when you are there, it's so important because the children learn about the world through you. You don't want them learning about the world through people who are not as invested, who don't care as deeply as much as you. That's why when we would go on trips or um, I would go to the New Harmony Project to develop plays while the kids were babies. I always had my mother with me, mm-hmm. or we had your sister with me. We always family had family. Family fa- was always family. Always family. family. <laughs> and I believe that we need to get back to that, where the community is family that's raising the children. You know, And I know that places in New York, too, You know, there are communities where people look out for each other. And that's so important that children grew up in that environment. Going back to family, um, if, I can't remember if it was the seventh or eighth year of our marriage, and I was so busy. I was—I think I was. It was right after Roseanne. I was the Disney deal. I was doing home improvement, and you were home with the kids, and I was never there. And we were arguing, and we got into one of those hissing, screeching, horrible fight, horrible probably fights, the worst, the worst of our marriage. And I turned to you, and I went. Does this mean we're going to get divorced? Because in my family, the way you resolve arguments was to get divorced. And I said, Angelina, are we going to get a divorce? And you stopped and looked at me like I had three heads. And you go, what are you talking about? We're just arguing. Don't you know we will never get a divorce? That's not in my family. That's never going to happen. (laughs) And somewhere in the back of my mind, I went, Oh, really? Oh, okay. So we can just argue. Okay. Yeah, and that so was so interesting how differently we grew up. Oh, well, I came from divorce family. So different. Mother my mar- mother married six times. My grandfather was married, I don't know, seven times. That's what I said. You get if you got into an argument, you got a divorce. Your family will argue to their last breath, but they're not going to break apart. Family was the core, the center of the universe. And that's what I appreciate. And there's always a way to work it out. Yes. Just say yes, dear. Agree with your wife. (laughs) That's right. That's why we've 35, 36 years. Yeah. No, I, I did, I did a post recently. It said after being married to you for over 35 years, I've learned the three most important words are not, I love you there. I hear you because what I did early in our marriage, I did the man thing. You would come to me and go, I can't believe the kids did this, the plumber did this. And I go, okay, stop. Just call the plumber, do this, do this, do this. I fixed your problems, which only pissed you off that much more because you didn't want me to mansplain anything or fix it. You wanted me to sit and actively listen and identify with your emotion. It took me about seven or eight years to finally realize that. Just keep your mouth shut and listen. And most things kind of work out. Well, wasn't that the premise of home improvement? Um, 
Women are from Venus, men are from Mars. Well, the premise of home improvement that David and Carmen and I came up with is that men and women should never, ever live together because they think differently, they speak a different language, they are incompatible. And that was from Deborah Tannen's book, You Just Don't Understand. That's, and she said that, that, that men think differently, they have a different language, a different vocabulary, women have a different vocabulary. So, yes, that's what drove 200-plus episodes of that show. And I, I write about this in my book. I'm going to plug my book for a second. Sure, go right it's called, ahead. It's called Glimpses, A Comedy Writer's Take on Life. Ka-ching, ka-ching. No, it's not ka-ching. But the ka-ching is it's, all, <laughs> I know, it's I know. all going to profits. I know, I know. Don't give me crap. Every penny, from the, every penny from this book is going to be donated to charities that help children. I know. So it's Glimpses, A Comedy Writer's Take on Life, Love, and all that spiritual stuff. And one of the things I write about is that during those home improvement years, almost every argument we had ended up... Oh, my God. (laughs) That was horrible. Home improvement episode to the point that one night you came with the kids, as you did every Friday, God bless you, to the taping, live taping in front of a live audience, right? And Tim and Jill are doing a scene, and I went, oh, crap, I didn't warn Angelina. And I leaned over and I grabbed your hand and I said, some of this scene may sound familiar. And what I had done was taken almost word for word a conversation we had at breakfast and turned it into a home improvement scene and ultimately an episode. And do you remember the conversation, what it was about? I'm trying to think which one, because there were several. Well, the there arg- were a number of them one that day, were surprises. Uh, this goes back to marriage and careers. And one day we were having breakfast and you said... Look, you're so busy with work, and I've got the kids, and all we ever do is get together to talk about what needs to be done at the house. You've got your time. I've got my time. I think we need our time. I think we need time where it's just you and me. And of course, I said, yes, of course. What do you have in mind? And you said, ballroom dancing. And my butt cheeks tightened, and I went, oh, God, anything but that. Let's go to Demolition Derby. Let's go... (laughs) Shark hunting, anything but ballroom <laughs> dance. But you really wanted us to take ballroom lessons. I wanted dance. to do something. We had to have a hobby together. So, we did nothing together. Well, that uh, but hold the family and the kids together and work. But and I think we went to two dance lessons at Fred Astaire yeah, Dance Studio. Something. I think you lasted twice for two. I yeah. lasted two, but that ended up becoming a home improvement episode with. Of all people, the dance instructor... Ann Miller. Aunt, the Ann Miller was the dance instructor. <laughs> and she was well up in her years, could still move. And I remember uh, Tim dancing with her, and he spun her and pulled her hand so hard when he spun her that there was a small tear in her skin on her hand, and we had to stop the rehearsal and take her to the hospital and bandage her hand. I think she wore a glove then for the taping. But anyway, the whole point is... That conversation at breakfast became a home improvement episode. Mm -hmm. So you've always inspired me. When I was a playwright, writing my very first plays, some one acts, you graciously, God, this is the connection back to the garage and the cherry lane. I didn't think of it till just this moment. We sat around the table. We read the plays. This is before we dated. I hadn't even kissed you. Right. Right. I remember and, At 666 West End Avenue, yes. 19J, and, your, your place. And we would sit around the table, you would read the play, and you would ask me, well, why is this going, why, why, at the, and you never said, 
this is how you fix your player. This is what you, you just kept asking me, why is she saying that now? And you would even do an improv with me. And because Suzanne Brinkley was directing the one X and she was there in the room and I go back and I go, you were always inspiring me. And we were talking about this the other day over breakfast about uh, something I'm working on. You said her superpower, this character superpower is she inspires people. And I thought that is your superpower. It really is. You inspire people. You inspire me. You inspire kids. You inspire playwrights. You inspire your staff, you, uh, actors. You inspire people. And you do that in a way that's not selfish. You just inspire and nurture people. You're very nurturing. And that's, that's really a gift. That's your superpower. Well, thank you. Uh, that's great. You're welcome. <laughs> I, I don't think about that consciously, but... Uh, I'm inspired by you. Before we wrap up, I always ask uh, my guests one question, and that's about seeing a little glimpse in your life. And by glimpse, I mean a little glimpse of God. And by God, I'm talking about moments of kindness, unexpected compassion, tenderness. Do you see glimpses in your daily life? I feel that my life is full of glimpses. I have to say. What's a collection of glimpses? A glare? I don't know. <laughs> good question. A bunch of glimpses would be... Good. You're the writer. A gaggle of a, glimpses? A ga- oh, that's very good. A gaggle of glimpses. I like that. That's good. Okay. So where do you see these glimpses? Well, um, I see it in my neighbors here uh, in the West Village. Um, in your theater? I see them in the theater. I, you know... I see when I see my assistant Nicolette skipping as she's sweeping in front of the theater. That's true. She we seems both so saw, happy. We saw her. She was pirouetting and dancing as she was sweeping the sidewalk. Yes, and that's a little glimpse of, of just a, a bright spirit at, at play. Yes, it's great. Um, uh, my dog is constantly giving me glimpses when she looks deep into my eyes. I just think oh my god she makes me melt angelina i know if someone broke into our house and put a gun to your head and said you have to choose between nova and your husband they would be burying me (laughs) and that dog would be on your lap possibly (laughs) (laughs) now when you look back over your life and i'm talking about career family everything was there a glimpse an exceptional moment of kindness or tenderness that changed the course of your life? Um, well, I have two examples. One uh, is familial. It's my father, who's always been rather gruff, and uh, he would always walk ahead of my mother, and, you know, he's very old school old Italian. School Italian. Yeah. Um, and when I was pregnant with Matisse... Our first child, our only daughter. Yes. I went home to visit him, and he was he couldn't do enough good for me. He'd open the door for me. He would carry my bags, all these things. It was the sweetest. It completely changed my relationship with my father because I was bearing his, uh, his first 
grandchild. It opened his heart, it like d- what you did. do in the theater and artists do. It opened his heart. It was so beautiful. Yeah. I I'll always remember that. And then uh, in terms of my career, my work, um, I had taken a month off. I was a, a receptionist at a promotions agency in Detroit, in the Fisher Building in Detroit. And I, I was um, subscribed to Dance Magazine, and there was a workshop in, at American University with... Um, I'm sorry, where's American University? It's in Washington, D.C. In D.C., okay. And it was with the American Dance Machine, who were the first... They were the first people to notate choreography. Okay. And I went because I wanted to learn all these different Agnes DeMille pieces, and uh, Buzz Miller taught us Steamed Heat. He was one of the original dancers. Ooh, Steamed you're going to have to dance that for me. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, he showed me how to how to dance like a stripper, too. Uh, you're going to have to show that to me. That's <laughs> <It was> great. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... Lee Theodore, who was the artistic director of um, the American Dance Machine, had played the original Anybody's on Broadway in West Side Story. Yes, the character. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, she held mock auditions, mock New York auditions. And I was there dancing six hours a day, seven days a week. And by the end, when we held these auditions, I was in pretty good shape. And... When it was my turn, we, we had to also sing. And I sang my song, and she said, where do you live right now? I said, I, I live in Detroit. She said, okay. She said, you need to come to New York. She said, you will work if you come to New York. And I was so gobsmacked. I, I was so uh, utterly inspired, excited that someone of her stature from New York City would tell me, come to New York, you'll get work. And I got chills because the woman was prescient because you came to New York with the urging from Suzanne Brinkley, your good friend, (laughs) but you came to New York, and how long were you here before you booked your first gig? I was here uh, probably 10 days. 10 days. So this woman saw something in you, said, move to New York. You moved to New York. You were here here 10 days and you got cast in a touring company of Annie. So this woman knew what she was talking about. Well, she saw something. She caught a glimpse. She, she caught me. a glimpse of you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, for that, it changed my life. And you, you went on tour with Annie and then you came back and auditioned again. You went on tour with Zorba mm-hmm. opposite Anthony Quinn. You mm-hmm. did that for couple of years. I, when, I, when I met you and we started dating, you were uh, touring with Quinn mm-hmm. because I was doing the Cosby show. I was a writer on the Cosby show, my first gig, and you were touring all over the country playing opposite Anthony Quinn in Zorba. And anytime we had a break on the Cosby show, I'd hop on a plane and fly to wherever you were. Right? Yeah. Vancouver. Yeah, it was so romantic. Buffalo, San Francisco. Chicago. Chicago. And then we would have these passionate San Francisco weekends or, uh, you know, four or five days and I'd fly back to the grind of TV and you would continue your tour. So I'm really glad that woman told you to come to New York. Yeah. Or else you wouldn't wouldn't have met you. I wouldn't have met you. I love you. I love you. Well, I, I, 
I, I'm going to end or start to wrap up this podcast with something my father said about a, a couple years before he passed away. My father said to me, son, do you realize that everything good in your life happened after you met Angelina? Oh. And that's true. That is so true. You have inspired me. You've built a life with me. You are my twin flame, my soulmate. You are my life partner. And I thank you for all of that. And I thank you for being on this podcast. And I love you dearly. Well, thank you for asking me, sweetheart, and for preparing so well. I, saw I that, did my homework. I saw that paper. I was like, whoa. Well, I did my homework. What's going on? I should have asked for questions in advance. No. So I'd be prepared I, I and well-spoken. I wanted to catch you off guard and get you. So thank you for being here. Thank you for asking me. I love you so much. I love you so much. You're the best. No, you're the best. You're the best. Let's not get silly. Okay, that's, that's it for this podcast. Thank you all for joining Glimpses. As you go about your day, I encourage all of you to take some time to look around and catch a glimpse.